It's good to be with you, church. My name is Halim Sah. I serve as one of the pastors and elders here at the Stone. We've been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew. And so last week we looked at the baptism of Jesus, and today we're going to be looking at the temptation of Jesus. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11 today. But before we get there, I want us to see that the baptism of Jesus and the temptation of Jesus are not two separate and isolated stories. They're back to back in the Gospels for a reason. What happened at the baptism of Jesus cannot be separated from what's going to happen in the temptation of Jesus. Let's jump right in. Let's start with the last couple of verses of chapter 3, verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then, then Jesus was led up, led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Chapter 4, verse 1 begins with the word then. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The word then here is crucially significant. Jesus was baptized and then he was led into the wilderness. And what happened at the baptism of Jesus? Jesus' identity, who he is, was publicly marked out by his Father. At Jesus' baptism, God the Father spoke for all to hear this. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Dr. Russell Moore says in his book, Tempted and Tried, which I think is the best book I've ever read on the temptation of Jesus, he said, in order to understand the temptations of Jesus, we have to understand that Jesus' hair was still wet when he stepped into the desert. When Jesus came up from the water, he didn't walk into the church fellowship hall for juice and cupcakes. There was no party planned for him at Chuck E. Cheese. With his hair still wet, he entered into the wilderness from baptism straight into battle. From the water straight into warfare. From the soul-satisfying words from heaven to the venomous words from hell. In every one of the temptations, Satan was trying to counteract what happened at the baptism. He was trying to counteract what God has just spoken, God's voice. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Satan's temptations, they all start out, if you are the son of God. God had just said, you are my beloved son. Satan's temptations start out. If you are the son of God, then turn this stone into bread and throw yourself off this cliff. If you're the son of God, he'll protect you. It was a replay of the Garden of Eden. Satan was up to his old tricks again when he asked Adam and Eve, did God really say? He's always trying to get us to doubt what God has just spoken. Did God really say you can't eat from that tree? This is at the heart of all of Satan's schemes against God's people, for us to doubt God's good word and for us to reject God's good fatherhood. When you hear demonic attack, demonic attack, what comes to mind? All sorts of crazy movie scenes, right? When I was eight years old, one night when my parents were gone, I watched the movie Exorcist and messed me up. Don't do it. If you haven't seen it, don't watch it. It'll mess you up. Now, could he... 
And does he do some of these things? Sure. But this is his preferred way of attack. This is his frontal attack. When Satan really means business, he really wants to come after you, this is what he'll do. Everything else is a sideshow. All of the many temptations that's thrown our way can be traced to this one obsessive, compulsive, satanic impulse. And that is that he wants us to doubt God's word. And he wants us to reject God's fatherhood. The temptations Jesus faced in the wilderness shows us what kinds of temptations that you and I will face in our lives. What kinds of temptations that you and I are facing now. You and I will be tempted exactly the way that Jesus was tempted. When we look at the temptations of Jesus, this is the way that we're going to be tempted. Why? Because God's word says Jesus was tempted in all the ways that you and I are tempted. And so this is how. Now, Jesus wasn't tempted to turn on his computer and look at pornography. Jesus wasn't being tempted to binge watch Netflix all night instead of praying. He wasn't being tempted to play Fortnite all day instead of healing the blind in the lane. He didn't face exactly, specifically the temptations that you and I might face. But at the end of the day, at at its root, they're all the same. All temptations are, as God's word says, common to man. What we have to realize is that the temptations that you and I face are not new temptations. They're never new temptations. They're very old temptations, dressed up in shiny new ways. As we look at the temptations of Jesus, we're going to see that we're primarily tempted in three ways. Primarily in three ways. Number one, we're, we're being tempted to provide for ourselves. To provide for ourselves. Number two, to protect ourselves. To validate ourselves. And number three, to exalt ourselves. Okay? So anytime we sin, anytime we fall into temptations, we're doing one of these three things. We're either providing for ourselves, we're either protecting ourselves, or we're exalting ourselves. In other words, we're being tempted to provide for ourselves, protect ourselves, exalt ourselves, because we don't trust that we have a good heavenly Father in heaven that will do these things for us in his timing, in the best and most wise way possible. Let's look at the first temptation of Jesus. Matthew 4, verse 1 again. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Let's pause here for a moment to talk about who is doing the tempting. Who's doing the tempting here? Let's look at what verse 1 is distinguishing. It makes it very clear that the Holy Spirit himself is leading Jesus into the wilderness, right? But the act of tempting, the act of tempting is not done by God. It's not done by the Holy Spirit, but by the devil. This is in keeping with what James tells us in James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So it's critical for us to understand here from the outset that you and I are never tempted by God. You're not. And Jesus here is not being tempted by God. But God is doing something, right? He's the one who led Jesus into the wilderness. And so what is God doing here? Well, James tells us in the verse right before, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. According to James, while the devil is tempting Jesus, at the very same time, At the very same time, God is testing Jesus. 
He's putting him under trial. What we're seeing here is that in the wilderness, Jesus is both tempted and tried. Both tempted and tried. And so we're never tempted by God to sin, but we are often tested by God. The difference between tempting and testing is critical. Here's the difference. The goal of tempting is evil. The goal of tempting is always to try to get you to sin. While the goal of testing, as James says, is that you may be perfect and complete and not lacking in anything. The goal of tempting is to pollute and to contaminate while the goal of testing is to refine and to purify. One event is happening. One event is happening, but there are two purposes at play. Just as Joseph, back in the book of Genesis, when he's describing how he was sold off into slavery by his brothers, he says, brothers, what you meant for evil against me, God meant it for good, right? The same thing happened. I was sold off into slavery. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And so here, what Satan means for evil and trying to get Jesus to sin and cast off God's fatherhood, to doubt God's word, God meant it for good to show us his absolute holiness, to show us his absolute sinlessness. So we see God acting and at the same time Satan acting. But let's think biblically about the devil here. Let's not overestimate him and put him on equal grounds as God as though there's this cosmic tug of war between God and the devil. Let's not assign him too much power to him and think that Satan can make you sin. Do you know that Satan can never make you sin? He can only tempt you to sin. God didn't assign him that kind of power. But let's not over, underestimate him either and assume that he doesn't exist, assume that he doesn't have any power because he does. Many times when we fall into temptations, this is the reason why. We either overestimate him, we assign him too much power by saying these temptations, they're too strong, I can't overcome and I have to give in. You're assigning him too much power. You're overestimating the role of Satan in your life. Other times we underestimate him. We say, oh, these temptations, I got it. They're not a big deal. I don't have to share it. I don't have to bring it up to brothers and sisters in Christ for accountability. I got it. I could handle it. You're underestimating him. Satan is very real. Jesus said he's real. All right, do you believe in Jesus? Then you believe in Satan too. He's real. And he has powers God calls him the God of this present age, the prince of the power of the air. He's real, he's powerful, but at the same time, God orchestrates all that he does. He's never on free reign. He's on a leash. So that's the enemy, that's the tempter. Now let's get to the first temptation, verse two. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus wasn't glamping in the desert. He was fasting. He was refraining from food in order to pray and spend time with his father. And Matthew states that he was hungry. Well, that's a no-duh statement, Right? But it's not just a no-duh statement, it's, it's an amazing statement if you think about it, that God himself would experience hunger. How could God himself experience hunger? He was doing it for us, right? Matthew is putting us on notice, all these temptations that Jesus is about to go through, they're real. 
they're real. Because he is 100% God at the same time, for us, he has entered into 100% humanity to the point he experiences small little things like hunger. All the temptations that Jesus is going to experience is real. And they're not only real, but he's about to experience the full brunt of the temptations that Satan could throw at him. The sad thing is, for many of us, all the temptations that we face, many of them, when do they end? When do they end? The moment we give in, right? But have you ever, by the power of the Holy Spirit, fought against those temptations? No, no, I'm not going to give in. What happens to those temptations? Do they get easier? No, they keep increasing. The power of the temptation keeps increasing, trying to get you to give in, right? And so Jesus, remaining without without sin, though he was tempted in all the ways that we are, and yet being without sin shows us that he himself, he's the only one who has ever experienced the full brunt, the full force of the temptation of his enemy. His temptations were not only real, but they are stronger than you and I have ever experienced. He lived his whole life without ever giving in. And so Jesus, in his humanity, he's isolated, he's lonely, he's tired, and he's hungry, right? We, we miss lunch sometimes, and we, t- we turn into lunatics, can't think straight, right? But Jesus, for 40 days, what is he saying? This is at his weakest moment, Satan has come to attack. The devil's attack was essentially this. He asked, are you really the son of God? If God is your father and he loves you so much and is well pleased with you, why in the world is he not providing for you in this moment? Why is he holding out on you? You're hungry. You haven't eaten in 40 days. You deserve food. What kind of father wouldn't give his child food? And is this temptation familiar to you? There's something that you want. There's a hungering that you feel and you can't for the life of you Imagine why the desire that you have is a bad desire. You can't for the life of you imagine why, why won't God meet this want in my life? It's a good want. It's a good desire. Maybe it's a desire to be married for a husband, for a wife. Maybe it's a desire for a baby. Maybe it's a desire for health, for your loved ones to be healed of cancer or some other debilitating disease. But you find yourself now, perhaps after many years, still single, still childless, still weary and tired from all the doctor's visits. If the God of the universe is your father and he loves you and if he's well pleased with you, right? He's not mad at you. He loves you and he's well pleased with you. Why in the world is he not providing for you? Why isn't he? Why in the world would he allow such painful things to happen in your life? Have you ever had a thought like this? Maybe you thought it was just the thought of your own making, but it's not. What the temptation of Jesus here is showing us is that every time you and I have a thought like this, it's nothing less than demonic attack. Him tempting us to doubt God that he is our good heavenly father that provides for his children. It's the devil tempting us to believe that God is holding out on us. And that if we want good things in this life, then we need to take it for ourselves. We need to grasp it for ourselves. We need to claw for it for ourselves. Satan wants us to act like orphans. He's saying, you don't have a father. You don't have a dad. You don't have anybody looking out for you. If you want good things in this life, you better make it happen. You better get it for yourself. And what is Jesus' response to this temptation? Verse 4. But he answered, it is written... 
Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Notice Jesus doesn't say man shall not live by bread. That's not what he says. He's not saying man shall not live by bread. He's not saying the desires that you have aren't real. He's not saying the desires that you have aren't good. He says man shall not live by bread alone. Jesus isn't negating or ignoring our desires. Our appetite for food, for sex, for security, approval, health, children, all of these are God-given desires. And with each desire that he gives us, he has some intended purpose in mind for those desires, either by meeting those desires so that we can give him thanks, or by not meeting those desires, but instead showing us that he himself is enough, by showing us that he himself is greater than the things that we might want. But Satan wants you to believe that true love, that if God really loved you, he would never ask you to restrain or deny your desires. Satan wants you to believe that true love would never put that kind of a demand or restraint on your life, that if God really loved you, that he wouldn't deny you anything. When do you most doubt God's love for you? When do you most doubt God's love for you? when he's not giving you what you want, right? Satan wants you to believe that if God would withhold anything from you, it's the same as him withholding everything from you, that a good father would deny his children nothing, right? You look at your life and God's given you countless things, innumerable things. You can't even count it. You you don't even know all the things God is providing for you, but you point to the one thing that God's not giving you and you say what? God, you never give me anything. That's our heart. That's the temptation. And isn't that what the sexual ethic of today is all about? That a denial of your desire is a denial of your very self. And that your identity is defined by what you desire. What you want is who you are. But Jesus is showing us that we are more than just our physical appetites. We're not animals. That's what animals are acting upon every appetite, that your identity is not determined by your wants, but that instead your wants ought to be determined by your identity. Your wants ought not to flow out of just your belly and that determine who you are. Your desires is not who you are. That doesn't define you. Your hunger doesn't define you. Your hunger doesn't tell you who you are. God's word tells you who you are. And God's word tells you, Christian, that you are son, that you are daughter of the Most High King. And out of that identity ought to flow our wants and desires. And we see something else in Jesus' response to Satan in verse 4. If you've grown up in church, you know that Jesus is quoting scripture here. Jesus resists every temptation with God's word. He says it is written, and each time he quotes from the book of Deuteronomy, interestingly enough. What he was doing was he was connecting the dots between what was happening to him now and what happened way back then in the book of Deuteronomy. Jesus was showing that he really understood what was happening, that Satan wasn't doing a new thing, he was doing old things, that this, all of this was a repeat of an old story. By pointing to this text in Deuteronomy, Jesus was essentially saying to Satan, I know who you are, and I know what you're doing, and I know who I am, and I know what I'm doing. And so what was the old story that was being repeated in this story? First, it was the story of Adam and Eve, when they too were tempted with food, 
right? Tempted to doubt God's word, not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good, good and evil. But in Deuteronomy, it was the story of the Israelites. The 40 days in the wilderness was not just a random length of time. It was representative of something. It was representative of the 40 years that the Israelites spent in the wilderness. And so Jesus, coming out of the waters of baptism, goes into the 40 days in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The Israelites came out of the waters of the Red Sea, delivered from slavery, goes into the 40 years of wilderness where they too were tempted by the devil, when they too doubted God's love for them because they thought that God had brought them out of slavery and not to rescue them but to starve them. They remembered their days of slavery with fondness. They said, we remember sitting by the pots of meat when we ate bread to the full. They said, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt that was without cost. Was it really without cost? They said it was better for us in Egypt. They would rather be slaves than sons. This is the point of the enemy's schemes. This is the point of the temptations for us to reject our sonship and embrace our slavery once again. Jesus was stepping into Eve's hunger. That's what he's doing. He was stepping into the Israelites' hunger. He was stepping into our hunger. And where Adam and Eve failed, where Israelites failed, where you and I failed, Jesus did not fail. How? By hearing the voice of his father and by simply believing the words, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Dr. Russell Moore says in his book, those invisible words were louder for him than a stomach's growl. Those invisible words were louder for him than a stomach's growl. And so that's the first temptation, the temptation to provide for yourself, to grab and claw for yourself like an orphan because you don't believe that your heavenly father will provide what's truly best for you at the time that he's determined for you in the best and in the most wisest of ways. Now let's look at the second temptation. A good father will not only provide for his children, a good father is going to protect his children. And so the second temptation is the temptation to protect yourself, to validate yourself. Verse 5, then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on, the, on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus finds himself no longer in the rocky wilderness, but in Jerusalem, on top of the temple. And Satan says to Jesus, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he says. For it is written, Satan says. And so what's he doing? Satan's quoting scripture, right? Satan isn't taunting, daring, he's not saying, oh, Jesus, I dare you to jump. That's not what he's doing. He's preaching a biblical text to Jesus, Satan has scripture memorized too. Jesus has just got done quoting scripture to Satan. Satan says, okay, you want scripture, I'll give you scripture. He quotes Psalm 91, and he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Satan is saying, this is God's word, is it true? If you're really the son of God, prove it to be true. Throw yourself down, let's see what happens. If Jesus would have thrown himself down, 
Not only would he have been protected, but he would have been protected, lifted up by angels in the most public way in Jerusalem at the temple for all to see. Now, remember the context. This was the beginning of Jesus' ministry, a ministry that would be filled with false accusations and indictments. And Satan was saying, why go through all of that? Why go through all of that? Just show off your power right now. Just show off your privilege right now. Use your powers to validate yourself. Use your powers to serve yourself. Prove who you are. But this was exactly the opposite of what Jesus did with his power and his privilege, right? What did did Jesus use his power for? Every single time, not to serve himself, but to serve others, right? Jesus said he didn't come to be served, he came to serve. What is Satan doing? Satan is trying to flip upside down Jesus' kingdom ethic. He's saying all the power that you have, use to serve yourself, not to serve others. Isn't that convicting? How do we use our power? This is the heart of the second temptation. It was a temptation for self-protection. It was a a temptation for self-validation. It was a temptation to use the powers and the privileges and everything that God has given us to serve who? Me. Satan wants us to believe that God's protection should never mean a single moment of obscurity, that it should never mean a single moment of vulnerability. Why? If you're God's son, why in the world should you have to go through that? That if God really loved us, then he would never put in a situation where we would be powerless, where we would be misunderstood. But what God is offering in our identity as God's children and what he's protecting us from is the daily exhaustion of trying to control people's perception, the daily exhaustion of trying to prove ourselves in front of people. So many of you, so many of us are being held Hostage, and we live under the slavery of what other people might think of us. 50 people might praise your name. One person criticizes you, and you go into full-on depression mode. You tweet something, post something on social media, and if there's even the slightest, mildest suggestion that someone didn't like what you said, that someone disagrees with you, then you go on a 178-reply rampage about why you're right. You spend some money, buy something, and somebody says, oh, nice shirt, nice shoes, and you immediately have to justify yourself and explain what a great deal it is that you got. You're on a play date with your kids, lots of people around, and suddenly you find that you're so much more kind and patient in your parenting. You don't parent like that at home. Anytime you leave a conversation, if there's anything about the conversation that someone might have misunderstood, you go back texting, trying to clarify. When you're speaking in front of people, anything else but a smiling, nodding head just folds you up. Isn't it all so exhausting? Jesus felt absolutely no need to protect himself, to validate himself in front of others. Most of his life was spent in obscurity, even though he was the son of God in the flesh. He was constantly misunderstood. The people would call him a blasphemer for claiming that he was the son of God. The people would call him a drunk and a glutton for eating with sinners. They would say he had come to destroy God's laws rather than to fulfill them. Can you imagine if Jesus, every time he was misunderstood, he would go back, actually, guys, I'm sorry, what I really meant was, though he had the power to call down legions of angels, he made himself powerless. 
He made himself vulnerable to being arrested and crucified. And as the people were spitting at him, jeering him, yelling at him, if you really are the son of God, come down from that cross, Jesus. What kept him from coming off that cross right then and there? What kept him from saying, you know what? I'm tired of this. I'm going to get off the cross right now, show you who I am. Condemn all mankind. What kept him from doing that? Because he had overcome this temptation already. It was an old temptation, right? What enabled Jesus to stay on that cross was that he fully entrusted himself to his father. He knew he was the son of God in whom his father was well pleased. He already had his father's approval, right? He already had his father's approval, so he wasn't desperate for man's approval at every turn of his life. Jesus isn't saying you shouldn't care about validation. That's not what he's saying. He was saying he won't test God He won't try to force God's hand. He was saying he trusted his father's timing. That's what he was saying. I trust my father's timing. And the timing that God had in mind for Jesus' validation was Easter Sunday with the tombstone rolled away. You see, God had in mind the validation exceedingly greater than the angels protecting his feet. He had the resurrection in mind, right? And so Jesus was content and willing to wait. Are we willing to wait? Are we willing to wait? Don't you know, Christian, there's, a, there's waiting for you a day of validation and a vindication that you can't even imagine. God wants to protect you. He wants to spare you from the anxiety and the everyday exhaustion of trying to validate yourself, trying to prove yourself, trying to get approval from others because you have a heavenly father who fully approves of you. He is well pleased with you. And now let's look at the third and last temptation. The first one was, because we are God's children, we don't have to provide for ourselves. We don't have to claw and and try to get things for ourselves. And second, because we are God's children, we don't have to validate ourselves. We don't have to protect ourselves. We don't have to prove ourselves. And lastly, because we are God's children, we don't have to exalt ourselves. Again, verse 8, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. At the climax of Jesus' wilderness temptations, Satan took Jesus to a very high mountain, right? From the lowliness of the rocky wilderness to Jerusalem to the temple and now to a very high mountain. And Satan showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Now, since there is no physical mountain from which you could see all the kingdoms of the world, this is probably a vision, a vision in which Satan literally showed Jesus every kingdoms of the world and its glory, perhaps all the future kingdoms as well. Satan, the God of this present fallen age, was freely offering all that belonged to him. Satan was saying, everything I have is yours under one condition, that Jesus, you would fall down and worship me. Satan was offering Jesus an inheritance. That's what he was doing. Everything I have is yours, Satan is saying. If Jesus would reject God as his father and bow down and worship Satan as his father, 
Dr. Russell Moore says in his book that Satan wasn't just trying to tempt Jesus here, but that he was trying to adopt Jesus here. Now, Jesus, of course, knew that he, he was the heir of his father's kingdom. He knew that God pro- had promised the nations to him, the very ends of the earth to him, as an inheritance in Psalm chapter 2, verse 8. But Jesus had received all of this only by God's word, right? Not by vision. He had faith in God's word. He wasn't given this by sight. God had promised by his word to give Jesus the inheritance of the nations in the future age after he had accomplished the redeeming work of purchasing his people at the cross. But this was Satan's temptation. He was saying, why go to the cross at all? Why go to the cross at all and why wait? I'll give them to you in the here and now. Just bow down and worship me. Satan was asking Jesus to demand his inheritance right now which was exactly the story that Jesus recreated in his story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son was essentially saying to his father, Father, I wish you were dead so that I could have your inheritance now. Right? That's what he was saying. I wish you were dead so that I could have all your stuff, so that I could move off to a far-off country, so that I don't have to live in your house anymore, under your rules, under your will, under your plan, so that I could get rid of you but keep all your stuff. And I could use all your stuff for my enjoyment my plans. And is that in many ways the greatest temptation of all? To only want what God can give you rather than God himself. To only want what God can do for you but not God himself. To love the gifts more than the giver. If right now God would give you the choice, you could have everything. Everything you ever wanted, but you can't have me. What would you say? What would you say? That was the deal. That was the temptation, the greatest temptation that Jesus was being offered. Satan was saying, I'll be a good father. I won't demand anything from you. I'll give you everything right now. You could do with it what you want. Satan was saying to Jesus, you could have it all without God in your life. And stop and try to really think about the implications of this offer. If Jesus would have accepted it, Satan truly would have surrendered his reign of terror on earth, right? What does that mean? That means that there would be no more abortions. It means that there would be an immediate end to all human trafficking, all genocide, all disease, all poverty would come to an end. And think about it. This was 2,000 years ago. If Jesus would have taken this deal, there would have been no man stealing out of Africa so that we could have slavery in America. There'd be no racism. Loved ones that you lost to cancer would still be alive. Babies you lost to miscarriages would still be alive. There would be no human conflict or any natural disaster. It would be paradise. And best of all, Jesus wouldn't have gone to the cross in order to get it. So why in the world? Why in the world would Jesus say no to this? Because Jesus knew after we've all lived our lives in this kind of a paradise, eventually, eventually death would come and we would all go to hell. And Satan would have his claim on us once again. You see, Jesus knew without the cross, apart from his crucifixion and him becoming sin for us and dying on the cross for us to pay for our sins and rise again from the dead to conquer sin and death forever, there could never be an everlasting paradise. At best, he could say, you know what? 80 years of paradise. At best, he could say, 
200 years of paradise, maybe even a thousand years of paradise in this kind of a world where there was no sickness, where there was no disease. But eventually, eventually death would come and hell would follow. This was the third temptation. A crossless claiming of his people. A crossless claiming of his people. Instead of trusting in his father's plan to eternally purchase his people through the cross, exalting himself now, claiming his inheritance now, instead of waiting for the true and better inheritance that his father had for him. So don't you see, church, Jesus doesn't just want you back. He wants you perfectly back. He doesn't just want to heal your earthly disease. He wants to heal your eternal disease. He doesn't just want to delay your death. He wants to destroy your death. He wants you to be his and he to be yours forever. Forever. And he was willing to go to the cross for it. Satan was willing to give up everything he had. He was. He was willing to give up everything he had because at the end of the day, he doesn't fear morality. That's not what he fears. He's not like, oh, there goes God's people. They're being moral again. That's not what he fears. He doesn't fear external conforming to God's laws. Satan is quite willing to let family values thrive, social justice flourish, as long as there is no atoning sacrifice for sin. As long as the gospel of the death and resurrection of Jesus is absent. Long as there is no cross. Satan is willing to surrender to you lots of victories, as long as they're crossless victories, as long as there's, there are victories that you've accomplished with your own might, your own self-discipline, apart from the power of the death and resurrection of Jesus. The only thing Satan is deathly afraid of is the cross of Jesus because it's only at the cross that he loses his grip on us. That's the only place. The only place that the enemy truly loses his grip on you is at the cross. In closing... When did the temptations end and when did Satan go away? When Jesus showed his identity as God's son was absolutely unshakable. When he showed that he trusted his father even to the point of going to the cross. After that, all Jesus had to say was, be gone, Satan, and he was gone. There was really nothing more to say, right? And this is the same for us, church. This is how we fight against the temptations that you and I face. By clinging to our sonship, by being unshakable in our identity as sons and daughters of the king, and by taking up our cross and following Jesus. On the one hand, trust that where Adam and Eve failed, where Israelites failed, where you and I failed, Jesus did not fail. Jesus is our savior and he has passed the test for us. He couldn't be waved off the path to the cross. He couldn't be waved off. And so because he went to the cross, he has purchased our eternal sonship for us. The Bible says he gave us the right to become the children of God. He gave us the right. This is an immutable right. This is a right that can't be taken from us and therefore cling to this identity. It's as sure as the death and resurrection of Jesus. But on the other hand, because Jesus is not only our Savior, but our example, and Jesus says to us, take up your cross daily and follow me. We not only need to cling to our sonship, we not only need to cling to what Jesus has done for us, but we need to take up our cross daily and follow him, right? Some of us, we're following Jesus. Some of us are every day taking up our cross and following him. But because you're not trusting and clinging to what Jesus has done for you, you're exhausted. 
Every day you're saying, I gotta pass the test again. I gotta pass the test again. The weight of the etern your eternity, you're bearing upon your shoulders and you're saying, I need to pass the test. Why? Because you're forgetting the fact that Jesus has passed the test for you. Others of us, we're clinging to the fact that Jesus has passed the test for us, right? We're saying Jesus did it, but we're not following him, right? And so we're living, a, living an absolutely defeated life. We're living lives that look nothing like sons and daughters of the king because we're not taking up the cross daily and following Jesus. When we cling to our sonship, when we cling to what Jesus has done for us and trust our Heavenly Father even to the point of taking up our own cross and following Jesus, when we are willing to deny providing for ourselves, when we're willing to deny protecting ourselves, exalting ourselves, right? when we're willing to deny these things, because we believe the voice of our Heavenly Father when he says, you are my beloved son. Do you believe that? You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. That's when, that's when Satan flees. That's when temptations lose its power. Let's pray together. Father, you know our hearts, you know our lives, our lives are laid bare before you. You know the many temptations that we face on a daily basis. You know the constant attacks of the enemy. You know his lies, you know his ways. They're nothing new, they're old. And yet, Father, we keep falling into the same old tricks. Though you have sent your son to eternally purchase for us our sonship, though we are your sons and daughters, many times we're still living in the pig pen, living in squalor, not realizing that we have a heavenly father who is looking off into the distance and at the slightest hint of our return is willing to hike up his robe and Come chasing after us. We thank you for the work of Jesus. We thank you that where we fail on a regular, everyday basis, he has not failed. We thank you for our great champion. We thank you for our great older brother. And Father, will you give us now the faith and the courage and the strength to not only trust what he has done for us, but to take up our crosses and follow him and say, Jesus, you're not only our savior, but you're our example. We're gonna follow you. And in the ways that he was victorious, will you make us a victorious people? Will you make us a people with open hands that say, I don't have to provide for myself. I have a heavenly father who provides for me. I don't have to protect myself. I don't have to validate myself. There's a day in glory in which God is going to validate me in ways that I can't do for myself. I don't have to exalt myself in this world. I don't have to show off my status in this world. My status is secure. My status is that I'm God's son, God's daughter, and therefore in this world, 
I could live my life in humility, serving others. Father, will you make us this kind of people, this kind of church? Thank you for the work of the cross. We thank you that Jesus could not be waved off his path to the cross. We boast in the cross of Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.